Welcome to the Team Coaching Zone podcast. Join your host, Dr. Krista Lowe, and today's leading organizational coaches as we explore the art and science of team coaching. Get ready for 45 minutes of pure inspiration and to take your team coaching practice to the next level. Now, let's enter the zone with your host, Dr. Krista Lowe. Welcome back, everyone, to this week's episode of the Team Coaching Zone podcast. I'm super excited to welcome a dear friend and colleague onto the show today. We have Dr. Susan Coleman of the Peace Building Podcast joining us. Susan, welcome to the Team Coaching Zone. Great to get Hi, you on. Hi, Krister. <laughs> uh, it's great to be here. It's great yeah, to do this. Good stuff. Well, everyone, um, I'm really excited about this interview. I've known Susan Coleman kind of probably going back about 20 years now. And uh, when I started graduate school at Columbia University, I was quickly introduced to Susan, who is sort of a big figure at uh, Columbia University and in the United Nations. She had a, a great program on collaborative conflict resolution. And uh, a number of us, those were really formative years. I remember one of my first experiences at the UN was going down and being an assistant to Susan while she was training diplomats and UN staff in collaborative negotiation skills for three days. And that really sort of uh, launched a lot of my career. I ended up going on and doing a whole certificate in conflict resolution. I did a master's degree in organizational change, but I did this subspecialty in conflict resolution. Um, Many years later, Susan and I taught together at Columbia and then uh, joined in a partnership together with some other colleagues. So it's been really wonderful having her as a mentor, as a peer, as a colleague. Uh, And uh, it's just been a really fun journey. And she has just this amazing background of 30 years of experience doing work all around the world. She's a coach and um, just a really great person. So, so Susan, um, great to have you on. Uh, where do we find you today uh, for this episode? I am in my beautiful home in Garrison, New York, which is in the Hudson Highlands, about 50 miles north of New York City. That's awesome. And I think you're in your little recording area because I see you've got your Peace Building Podcast banner behind you or badge up there on the wall and looks good on you. I do. I have my Gobo, which I understand is the name for this thing. I had a friend who who does all these uh, installations in in um, theater. He came and he built me this sound studio because nice. my house is kind of big and you know like echoey. So uh, yeah, I'm in my little Gobo, whatever. Nice. <laughs> I don't know what Gobo stands for, but I have to I, check yeah. that out. I mean, maybe I should get yeah. one of those myself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> Good yeah. stuff. Well, Susan, what I'd love to do is provide for the listeners a bit more of a background on you, and then I'll invite you to round that out. Does this sound good? Sounds great. All right, looks good. All right, everyone. So we have a special guest today. We have Dr. Susan Coleman, who is the host of the Peace Building Podcast. And she started this podcast, I believe it was last year, and it's grown out of a three-decade career as a specialist in the field of conflict resolution and strategies to build common ground. She's a lawyer, mediator, large group facilitator, leadership, team, and systems coach. She runs workshops in intercultural negotiation and communications, and has been highly trained to intervene in complex systems at the individual group and organizational levels. She has worked with organizations, communities, and people worldwide on the ground in engagements in more than 27 countries in the Americas, Europe, Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. She designed and delivered the first negotiation and mediation program for the United Nations Secretariat, and along with Ellen Rader, the first certificate program in conflict resolution for Teachers College, Columbia University. Clients have included the United Nations Worldwide, the Government of Switzerland, the New York City Board of Education, American Express, the Colombian Government, NASA, Columbia University, and the United States Department of State. She has an MPA from the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, a JD from Hofstra School of Law, Law Review Honors, multiple postgraduate certifications from the Gestalt Institute of Cleveland and the Organization and Systems Development Center, and is an ICF certified coach. And as Susan mentioned, she resides in the Hudson Highlands, north of New York City, where she regularly contributes to creating a greener and more sustainable community. So boy, Susan, a lot in there in that short paragraph. But uh, what else would you like the listeners to know here about you at the outset so we can, uh, before we dive in, start exploring some of the art and science of team coaching today? Wow. Uh, it's it's actually, it's great hear, hearing that read back to me. Um, I think what I want to say is just that, well, I'm forever 45, but I'm not really. And I <laughs> Welcome I, to the club. <laughs> yeah, right? And I've been thinking a lot recently about focus. I can't imagine where I get that idea from, mm. uh, from my friend and colleague, Krista Lowe. And um as I as I go into this next chapter of my professional life and personal life, I've been really thinking a lot about that and what I want to most contribute in uh, the next decade. And so 
all those things are true, everything you read. And I imagine just really buckling down this podcast that I'm doing. Also, I want to say, I would not be doing it were it not for you, Krister. As you know, you really inspired me to um, to get that going. I mean, you were focusing on teams and I one day I woke up and my feet hit the ground and I went, wow, I want to do this thing called the Peace Building Podcast, Strategies to Build Common Ground. I want to focus on intervening in large complex systems to figure out how do we how do we support collective leadership? How do we build and sustain collaboration in systems? How do we create principles and containers in which collaboration can thrive? Mm-hmm. Um, and I know from my background, you know, I've I've been beat up like all of us at different times in my professional career. And Mm. I think when I was first at, you know, that whole chapter at Columbia, it was kind of like Camelot. Everything was so amazing and so many people got trained and so many people went around the world to teach conflict resolution. And then, you know, life sets in and there was definitely, oh, different kinds of competition that was going Mm. on, different kinds of power struggles. And I got wiser and I thought, wow, am I just being naive to focus on collaboration? And, uh, in fact, I think I'm more devoted and dedicated to it than ever, but a lot wiser, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and really, I think particularly our world is feeling so unstable at the moment mm-hmm. in so many pockets, in so many places that um, it just feels like it needs bold, courageous stance. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm trying to get more courageous myself. I'm trying to just get more courageous. Yeah. Well, when I think of sort of courage, I mean, you're definitely a person that comes to my mind. I know you've been recently uh, in Afghanistan working with the women in the Afghan government. You've been in South Sudan. So you definitely have been putting yourself in places that are not um, totally safe. So I think you're you're really living those values and, you know, being able to go from really nice places like Switzerland, you know, working with the government of Switzerland to working with, uh, you know, the women in the Afghan government is a you know, I think really demonstrates a lot of your range and ability to work in a variety of environments, including corporate and, you know, so it's really good stuff. But anyways, I'm excited that I've been a little bit of inspiration for you about starting your own podcast. But I think the balance still tips in your um, your favor in terms of how much inspiration you had on me over the years. But I'd love to hear a little bit about your journey, Susan, into how you got into the field of conflict resolution, consensus building. I think we'll link that up a bit to your coaching uh, work later. But tell us a little bit about the journey. Wow. I, I uh, Let me think about this. I hadn't really thought about this question, but of course, I know you asked this question. <laughs> the short answer is that I started my professional career working. I set up a foundation um, called the North Star Fund, which still exists to this day. It was the first thing I did coming out of college, and I did some pretty cool building common ground there. In fact, uh, creating a new kind of structure for giving money to organizations that were doing important work. And that was by developing a community funding board that actually had control over how the assets were given out. I, I traveled around the city. I, I, I talked to all these organizers. So that was one of my first things that I did. And I was really focused on international development. I lived in Colombia for a while, which actually came, you know, support definitely influenced me when I was choosing to go to Afghanistan now, because I remember then Colombia was not an easy place. People were getting kidnapped a lot. And I am grateful to my mother at the time because people were all saying to her, are you crazy to let your daughter go down there? And she uh, was not just cavalier. She was educated about the whole thing. She had a good Colombian friend and she was like supportive of me to go and do that. And it was an amazing, amazing experience. I know you've had that experience as a mother yourself because you have some really bold kids oh that are doing God. some amazing stuff out in the world. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Back at my, you, right? So. Oh my gosh. My son finally, actually, he's been in Nepal and he was going to climb. Uh, he go, he found a peak. He's a mountaineer. He's very skilled. Uh, he's 21. He's led a lot of groups into the backcountry and in the wilderness in Alaska. Mm-hmm. But this time he kind of pushed the envelope with me and gives me an unnamed peak on Google Earth and says, I'm going by myself, and I'm going to go and climb that, mm. and speaks Nepali fluently, so really? I knew he'd be, wow. yeah, he he learned it really fast, it's amazing, he was in a semester there, but he kind of surprised everybody how quickly he picked up the language, but anyway, the last couple of days have been kind of agonizing, frankly, mm. because I really started, I knew he was on that, or I thought he was on that mountain, and I uh, was really, really uncomfortable. But I just heard from him yesterday. Mm. The phone rang and I saw it coming from Nepal and I thought, 
it's either going to be the chief of police of some unknown place in Western Nepal who's mm-hmm. going to tell me that they've, you know, it's God, it was just like horrible or it's going to be him. And it was him. So, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Instant karma, whatever. He yeah. also is an adventurous soul. Mm. And so is my daughter. But anyway, getting back to let's see. I then, you know, my the only thing I, you know, I was I was of an age that I was raised in. I, I mean, I was supposed to be a corporate wife. Krista, really. Mm. Uh, I grew up in a pretty affluent home. It was a pretty patriarchal home in a lot of ways. I was very privileged economically. I was not so privileged gender wise. I grew up in a place where I really, my power was definitely dimmed down by, you know, so many subtle and not so subtle messages about Mm. men being more important than I was. And, but given a great education, but the only thing I knew professionally when I when I realized I remember when I realized in college that, wow, I actually don't want to be a corporate wife. <laughs> <laughs> I as a matter of fact, and uh, and I actually need to figure out how to support myself, make a living, be a professional in the world, whatever. And uh, the only thing I really knew was my dad, who had been a, a corporate lawyer uh, in the city for Davis Polk Wardwell, which was a really well-known firm. And so I did what I knew and went to law school. And uh, got, you know, went, applied, didn't have a college transcript because I'd gone to this hippie college named Hampshire College. It was a cool place, but (laughs) we didn't get grades. And, um, you know, I did the whole law school thing for a while that, you know, became a commercial litigator. I think, wow, that was interesting. And um, talk about competition, right? Oh, my gosh. You know, and and I have memories of sitting around those those corporate board tables, you know, with with the men all smoking cigars and getting. By the Mm. way, I think cigars make you kind of high. I I never knew that until I watched them. But they'd all get kind of like fuzzy. Part of their strategy to soften the other side. Right. Yeah. I do have this really funny memory of it being my birthday and us all sitting around and uh, doing something very serious, you know, so I, I was with all, all we were doing. I, we were doing some preparation for, for some litigation, some commercial litigation. And it's just amazing watching that process because it's like, you know, one incredibly nasty letter, letter responded to another incredibly nasty letter to just these power struggles that go on and on. And hmm. my colleagues and I would laugh and say, you know, we never would sue anybody. But, you know, every time we were part of one of these lawsuits, we'd see another you know, wing go on our senior partner's house because they were mm-hmm. billing such incredible amounts to their clients. But anyway, one day I'm sitting around all these guys and me and, you know, whatever, doing doing our preparation. And my friend, I don't know why I'm telling you this story, but my it's my birthday. My friend decides to send me a singing telegram, a gorilla. Okay. <laughs> shows, up gor- <laughs> shows up in the room. Shows up in the room and sings me happy uh-huh. birthday. And, uh, the the partners were not they were they were not very happy about it. <laughs> I thought it well was they can really smoke funny. their cigars but you can't have a singing gorilla <laughs> I know and it was like one of those experiences where I thought it was one of a, of a number where I thought okay this is a little bit not going to be my place ultimately mm-hmm. uh, another one was when you know I I remember one partner telling me when I had to go somewhere instead of filing this brief and I was really I was really responsible about it. I gave them plenty of warning. It was a personal thing I had to do. It was really important to me. And I remember the partner looking at me and just saying, we don't do personal here. Wow. <laughs> and me thinking, okay, well, that's not going to work for me. And um, This is like yeah. 1980s or 90s or? Uh, yeah, 80s, mm-hmm. 80s. And so then I left. And, um, I, you know, it's hard to get out of there. It's hard for people in law jobs to get out of there because they can't mm. figure out what to do. And, but I did, so I went back to school. I went to the Kennedy School of Government. I'd had a previous focus on international development when I was at Hampshire. I'd actually done original research in Mexico that I still think, wow, I, I was like traipsing around these barrios of Mexico doing something on population issues, the politics of population mm. control in Mexico. Uh, long ago. And so I went to the the Kennedy School at Harvard and figured I would focus on international development and got connected there to the program on negotiation, which was coming out of Harvard Law School. And, you know, it's the origins of getting to yes and Roger Fisher. And and I just got caught right up in it. It was mm. like somehow it really uh, grabbed me the way it's grabbed a lot of people. You know, it combined my uh, my focus I'd been you know done a lot of my own therapy at that point you know I, which is an incredible education that I'd had in my own inner 
psychology. I found negotiation stuff to be a really great antidote to this litigation system right. that I More found win-win integrative. Oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It just was like, so like that, that, that win-lose kind of litigation system, the adversarial system mm -hmm. is just, it's, it's not bad in that, you know, if you think about societies where there is no system of rights and rules, right. they don't have any Advocacy. They don't have, right. they don't have, they need, they need some kind of container like that. But mm -hmm. then this container for us, the rights rules container has just gotten crazy in the United States and around the world. I mean, what, three quarters of the world's lawyers are in New York City or something, wow. something crazy like that. And then negotiation also was, it was um, international. I don't know, there was just a lot of components of, and I, and I seem to excel at it. I was doing these courses with Jim Sabanius and, Oh my God, I just forgot his name. Well, Roger Fisher and, and some other people at the Harvard, MIT, all uh, that mm -hmm. whole world. And I was really doing well. I got, I got awards. I just seemed to excel at it somehow. And so then I told them, I remember telling Larry Susskind at MIT, I remember saying, I am going to do intercultural negotiations and him saying something like there is no such thing. And I said, well, <laughs> now there is, <laughs> now there is, because that's what I'm going to do. I got to fill the and, gap. Yes. Uh, yeah. And I came to New York and uh, sure enough, I found Ellen Rader, who'd been doing intercultural negotiations mm. for, I don't know, like about 10 years at that point. And she'd made it up, you know, and she was traveling around Isn't the world. so interesting? I mean, I think there's a thing there that when we we find a passion around something that and we commit to it, just people appear and things start to happen, you know? You know, it's, a little it's bit really of a mystical thing. But anyways, yeah, it's interesting. No, it's yeah. really interesting when you get my my therapist of long ago is used to say clarity. Clarity is everything, mm. you know, and I. I think there is something about that, that when you get clear about what it is that you're trying to manifest, boom, yeah, yeah. You know, something, living something in can... alignment with your values, your calling or whatever, your true north or whatever. Yeah. So you right. found Ellen Rader and. Yeah. And Ellen, as you know, I think, you, you know, Ellen, she's mm. she's like just an amazing she was an amazing person to collaborate with. She was my first teacher in this field. And then she became my business partner. And we were in partnership together for a good long time. We formed Coleman Raider International. And that's how we started the program in conflict, the certificate program at, at Columbia. And it was when I was in that constellation that I created the um, program at the United Nations uh, in conflict resolution. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, you know, when we, wo we wove culture into everything that we mm -hmm. were doing. It was, you know, it was not just negotiate. It was not just collaborative negotiation skills. It was intercultural negotiation skills, mm -hmm. um, which was really true to my heart. And still, you know, I, I was influenced long ago by a book by Rianne Eisler called The Chalice and the Blade, that she's an anthropologist. And she, she wrote that book really uh, documents, you know, she will say that the history of human life on earth is basically the history of models of domination and models of partnership. And, you know, Bill Urey later on in his book, Getting to Peace, also says the same thing, that it's only been in the last, I, I don't know if it's 5,000 years, 10,000 years, that we've had this system of what I might call patriarchy, coercion, competition. I mean, it is the, it is the time that we've been mostly, you know, uh, of uh, our modern, mm -hmm. our modern human life on the planet. But before that, there's a lot of evidence of human beings living in partnership with each other. Yeah. Of course, there's a lot more space. And mm. anyway, I, uh, for a lot of reasons. It's actually, from uh, what I understand from evolutionary psychology, the majority of our evolution, we lived in, you know, relatively small bands or tribes, and there was a reverse dominance hierarchy where actually um, it was more collaborative. And um, and when people would get too far out of line, taking up too much leadership, the group kind of smacked them back into order, from what I understand from evolutionary psychology. But Oh, interesting. That's what you mean by reverse dominance hierarchy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't as hierarchical um, as, you know, we might have assumed. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess I think more of like Native American sort of um, circles and, you know, consensus building. I think that was actually more of our evolution. But as we moved into agrarian and industrial societies, we needed new forms of organization. Um, but yeah. Yeah. And that we're very, you know, ended up being very hierarchical. And now it's interesting, you know, now looking at what's happening in organizations and systems. I know mm -hmm. you just inter interviewed somebody who's doing holacracy, and mm -hmm. I just interviewed uh, Sandra Janoff, who um, does future search. Uh, just the the move towards systems thinking, whole mm -hmm. systems thinking, mm -hmm. 
and a more collaborative way of uh, experiencing organizations. So anyway, let me see. Yeah, which I think was part of your journey, right? So you you kind of mm-hmm. got in more into the negotiation training and our cultural stuff, but then you moved your way into more systems work. So and, and I think that eventually led to coaching. But why don't you connect some of those dots? Okay, yeah. So I remember, you know, I had done so much training. I had this great training design, it's great, which I still use and I still love it and I still deliver it. But I was doing a lot of it and I was very aware. I think like you have been aware in your journey that a lot of these things are systemic. You can't mm-hmm. just you can't just intervene. Right. I mean, intervening necessary yeah. but insufficient, yeah. Yeah, and it's not to say that individual uh, eurekas aren't really powerful for right, people. They right. really are. Um, and I don't want to. Well, had I, don't I not wanna... taken your class, I wouldn't have gone into the, you know, the the way I went in terms of my career. I mean, I, I saw what yeah. I saw in your course at Columbia, which was taught by one of our colleagues, Sandra Hayes, um, was a model of adult learning, of experiential learning, of tapping into a whole nother side of myself around emotions and, you know, uh, other things that just um, and skills. You know, I think it was way beyond cognitive knowledge, right? And that for me set me was sort of a tipping point that led to a whole cascade effect that, you know, I don't think I'd be a team coach today had I not had those early experiences. So, you know, it's it's interesting. I know you and I've had some interesting conversations around the limits of training. And yet, depending on how we measure impact, if we look at it at the individual level of analysis, it can be really transformative. It just seems to fall short of having sort of a system effect unless it's coupled with another more systemic intervention or change effort, right? Well, and I found for myself that I am forever interested in groups and the way groups, uh, the, the way groups operate. And also mm-hmm. that I think that some of the most powerful learning that I've had have been in the context of relationships and groups. I think the way I've grown the most have been in the context of relationships mm-hmm. and groups. And uh, so anyway, so I got drawn to the Gestalt Institute of Cleveland to mm-hmm. John Carter, mm-hmm. specifically at that point, who became my mentor and uh, did their organization and systems design program, which was an amazing, amazing program that, you know, happened over the course of nine, no, 18 months. It was nine sessions. I mean, it's amazing. Sometimes I don't think these programs exist anymore because everybody wants to do everything in a nanosecond. Mm. But, you know, we had time to really dig down deep. And as John said, this is not a personal development program, but let's just say there's a, a big personal development component. <laughs> <laughs> and there was, you know, it was a lot about seeing yourself clearly so that you could show up in organizational systems with people and not make too much noise with your own projections and your own stuff and the own, all the stuff that gets triggered, you know, when you're engaged with people. Mm. Uh, so that program was amazingly powerful for me. And I continued to do my learning with them. I did their working with groups. Uh, and then I did the international coaching program, which was my first jump into into coaching. And I remember John, he did that program with Dorothy Siminovich. And I remember yeah, him who I've kind had of on like, the podcast. And we right. had Dorothy come in to do, as a team coach for us, our, That's our right. partnership group, That's yeah, right. two years ago, three years ago. Yeah. yeah, and I remember John kind of being disgruntled about the whole coaching th- thing, saying, oh, my God, we've been doing this stuff for years, yeah. and now they're calling it coaching. <laughs> I know. I get a lot of that generation on my podcast who is yeah, yeah, right. kind right. of poo-pooing the whole coaching thing. But then they're they're using the label, too, I think, begrudgingly, because <laughs> well, that's where I, the market like, has shifted. I, I, I like the label because I, you know, I'm a mediator and I'm a coach and I, you know, I mean, I think simply when I'm working with a group, there are groups that, you know, are really trying to put out fires and then there are groups that are trying to go higher. And I think the mediator hat is putting out the fires. The coach hat is let's go higher. You know, let's see how high we can go here together. And lots of times they go together, you know, lots Mm -hmm. of times groups that have, you, you know, we have that, I know you've seeing that quote, what is it? Um, the Albert Einstein quote about conflict is, I can't believe I can't remember what it is. You mean but the anyway, consciousness quote that no problem yeah, can I mean, be solved I, at the I, same level of consciousness. Well, one of those, and also just that, that lots of times if you use conflict, well, mm. you actually can use it as an opportunity to uh, reshape things and actually go higher. Yeah. And uh, well, I mean, I think my observation of doing a lot of work in the conflict resolution world is that conflict is usually a, an indicator that um, an underlying change is needed in something in the system. Yeah. Uh, and that could be an individual, a pair, a team, a larger organization, but conflict is usually an indicator that some growth or fundamental change is not happening or some human needs are not being met. And, you know, that's what's giving rise to the conflict. Yeah, it's a, it's a developmental opportunity. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> you can put it like that. <laughs> 
So uh, to summarize, you kind of have developed over your career, it sounds like, you know, one on one work, working with pairs, mediation, et cetera, working with groups and teams and then large systems. Because I know you do some large group methods like future search and open space. You've done some really, you know, interesting work around the world uh, with that. So I think, you know, part of I guess one, one thing that's wonderful about your background is you're able to work at all levels of system. Yeah. And uh, I just interviewed uh, Richard Boyatzis recently and um, really looking at some of his work around intentional change theory. And he talks about how change has to be multi-level because it has to be able to work at, at levels. And I think for team coaches, we need to be able to work with individuals. We need to be able to work with dyads. We need to work with the team, but we also need to be able to work with the team in relationship to the larger context. Right. Which well, is a as we know, of, you know, teams uh, exist in yeah, teams exist inside systems, right. and I mean, this isn't a, a team situation I'm going to refer to, but mm. um, but when I was doing some work in Cyprus a long time ago, I was just really aware of how the Greeks, the Greek Cypriots and the Turkish Cypriots, they really wanted actually to come together uh, because they had been neighbors. And they were kind of tired of the conflict. The conflict had been going on for generations. They were sick of it. But every time they actually came together, somebody from the outside, from Greece or Turkey, came in and mm. and, and uh, messed it up. <laughs> and, you know, the same thing happens inside organizational yeah. systems. You know, a team can actually come together and be quite a powerful cohort. But then if the if the system outside of it is undermining it, uh, constantly, it's difficult. It's right. difficult to hold on to that collaboration. So, yeah, that's I think not you see that you know. in a lot of the team coaching models. Peter Hawkins' framework. I had Gordon Kerfee on the podcast recently, and even Ruth Wagaman's work. You know, just looking at the organizational context and support is a big one, right? And I think that's sort of a danger point for a lot of us team coaches because just kind of grappling with the team and helping the team get us act together, it's easy to lose sight of the team's relationship to the larger system. What I like about the Gestalt framework is that, you know, my training, my systems training is such that, you know, Gestalt uses the concept of figure ground. And when you identify this kind of far, you know, figure ground, simply put, is kind of like there's uh, there's the forest and then there's the trees sticking up in the forest. And, you know, what are you going to focus on mm. and creating energy around what it is that you want to focus on that's important to that system. But the Gestalt training is such that once you identify what the figure is that's interesting to you and the, to the client and to you and there's energy around it, you can work that figure at any level of system. Hmm. You can work it at individuals. You can work it with the teams. You can work it with the whole system. And sometimes, ideally, you work it, you know, you work it with all levels in different ways. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Cool. So, Susan, I, I'm sure we could we could burn the whole episode just yeah. chatting. Um, but I'd love to get a little bit for the listeners out there, you know, a story or two in here. And again, I think we could probably fill up a whole season just getting into stories of your case examples, you know, from companies to I know you were, did some great work with uh, in northern Iraq with the Kurds. And um, but I know recently you had this just really incredible trip to first to Tajikistan and then to Kabul working with the women um, in the Afghan government. And I don't know if that's a good case or not. I think it's a really interesting one. I think it also, one of the themes I know about you is you've really moved a lot more into women's leadership development and women's development. So that may be a good story that covers a number of themes that I think is re relevant for you now in your practice. I'd love to talk about it because I actually meant to talk about it on my podcast and I haven't gotten around to it okay. yet. So I really look forward Speaking to I mean, an appetizer really, for those. Yeah, I'm grateful for the <laughs> but opportunity. Actually, you know what, Susan, just before we get into that, do you want to say just a few words about, you know, how you think about team coaching and how does that fit into the, you know, the range of things that you bring when you're doing work in a system? Yeah. So I'm new, uh, relatively new to team coaching, but I have definitely been using it and pushing clients to use it more and more because as we know, lots of clients just want to do these away days, one-off things, and change really happens over time. So, well, I can actually talk about it in the context of this intervention because I, I used it, cool. I used the concepts quite a bit, and maybe that will, I'm doing a couple of team coaching engagements myself right now, but which are, you know, one is with a co-op board, another one's with another UN organization, but I think, uh, yeah, I can maybe, because I'd love to yeah. talk about Afghanistan, maybe I'll just morph Let's it do that. in. Yeah, we'll, we'll blend them together. That sounds good. So yeah. give us the, the backstory on the um, that, that project. Well, first, I guess I can say that, you know, in terms of building and sustaining collaboration, which has been kind of my life's, my professional work, and then being the host of the Peace Building Podcast, 
to me, probably the, the, the most powerful peace building intervention that could happen on the planet is women's empowerment. Is there really being partnership between men and women on the planet? I think things have been really out of balance and that really could shift things in powerful ways. I'm not the only one who thinks that. So the and so the president, His Excellency, the president of Afghanistan and Her Excellency, uh, the first lady, first lady specifically have been very, very important, uh, uh, interested in empowering women in, in Afghanistan and uh, UN women is in Afghanistan. They actually, it's probably one of the larger UN women organizations, I believe. And I think it's probably because other people agree with me that if you start empowering women, you, you can create a more collaborative, less conflictual society. Mm. But anyway, this, this work was with the senior ministers, uh, senior female civil servants is the way they articulated it. And there are, so the, we had two cohorts. Uh, one cohort was about, I don't know, like eight, uh, 18 people and they were for the highest level people. And then there was the, the, the next cohort was like for maybe 25 women just beneath them. From and, what I understand, uh, that's about all of the women in the in the government, right? It is, yeah. you know. So and, about 40, um, or 50, 40, 40 or 50 women altogether. This came about because, and I don't, you know, I want to be a little, uh, you know, I have to be a little respectful of my client, but, mm. you know, I mean, it's not easy, as you might imagine. Not easy being a woman in uh, the Afghan government, in Afghanistan, period. Well, actually, I think there's uh, death threats, right, for those women. Constantly, yeah. constantly. And uh, so I think this came about just because there was a, a perceived need to do skill building specifically and um, and also to actually really build this cohort as a team, quote unquote. They are mm -hmm. not an intact team, mm -hmm. but they are essentially a team. Well, before this program, they actually were not as much of a team as I think mm -hmm. they are now, which mm -hmm. is one of the. What, uh, some of what I think happened that mm -hmm. I think was, was really important. So, but um, they have a common shared purpose around elevating the status of women in Afghan society, and that's sort of kind of a common purpose for them. Fiercely so. Mm -hmm. In fact, they call themselves the fierce mothers of Afghanistan. Wow. And, you know, if it's Afghanistan... <laughs> right? If, you know, Afghanistan has created the, the, the Mujahideen and the Taliban, they have also it's also created these women. And these mm -hmm. women are really, I mean, I think one of the things that really stood out to me is that I went in there kind of, and I think everybody, they and we assume, oh, you know, poor Afghan women. And yeah, there's reasons to feel sorry for them, but they are somehow not as developed, quote unquote, as we are, or whatever you might say. These women are so incredibly powerful and have so much integrity and so much intelligence that I was really blown away mm. and, and hum very humbled by them. And they, I think, are so clearly focused on improving the lives of women in Afghanistan. And they have to do some seriously dangerous things. They, I mean, I noticed for myself, I just want to give a little bit of the context mm -hmm. for me coming into Afghanistan and some of, I don't know, would it be interesting to talk about I some of my so, own probably. challenges? Yeah. You know, because... Right from the get go, it's a little bit like, really, am I going to do this? Is this I mean, some people around me were saying, Susan, you're crazy to go mm. into Afghanistan. Uh, I should say the first uh, this program was in two parts. The first part was in Tajikistan. We met there because there were four consultants involved and um, coach consultants, whatever. We, some of them call themselves coaches and called themselves consultants. But one of them was a former British ambassador. And he was like, forget it. I'm not going into Kabul. Mm. And they so wanted him because he does public speaking and he does it. His name is Charles Crawford. He does an incredible job on public speaking. And um, there's one woman in the Afghan government, Durukshan Ismadi, who is like, she's like really the mastermind of all of this. She's this really very spunky young woman who just uh, really pulled this whole thing together. I mean, it's interesting what, what and she works for the, works for the uh, president of Afghanistan. And she had met Charles and she knew how powerful he was as a, as a teacher of public speaking. And these women are, you know, they're often doing public speaking engagements. And, you know, I just, the, the minister of, of women's affairs, for instance, she's like such an amazing, you know, a humble woman who is regularly having to stand up and give speeches about why, you know, about women's rights about things like, you know, how to talk to men, mm. uh, how to convince your brothers and your, your fathers, 
to do things differently with their daughters and regularly gets death threats and has to, you know, a lot of these women have bodyguards, you know, there's bombs going off around, you know, car bombs. Mm. It's a big thing. And also there's the issue of people getting kidnapped. You know, many, many of these, many of these women, the more I heard about their personal stories, there's just a constant level of security issues that are bombarding them. And so for me, as a, as somebody going into Afghanistan, I had to deal with a lot of personal anxiety myself. Well, I think, you know, you know where that's sort of a parallel, I think probably for all team coaches and yours is kind of, an, you know, more of an uh, extreme case, I guess you could say is, you know, how do we manage ourselves as a team coach, right? We yeah. enter into environments, contexts we've never been before or clients we never worked with. We have to kind of take up the spirit of being a team coach and, and self-manage, you know, our own fears yeah. and anxieties and all that, right? Yeah. And, you know, so for me, the first, you know, the first thing is, you know, uh, coming in, being in Dubai and then coming into the gate where I was going to Kabul, putting on the headscarf, you know, because I knew I had to be covered anytime I was in a public place. Just that experience alone of covering myself was uh, and, and suddenly being in a place where I was one of the few women in that waiting area. And I was just constantly a little bit afraid. Mm. A little bit afraid that I didn't know, you know, people said, oh, they're Taliban spies everywhere. You know, how much would somebody want to kidnap somebody like me? Mm. You know, I mean, there's a lot of kidnapping that's going on in Afghanistan. How and I really want to say I'm a, I was very appreciative of the U.N. and how much they have created a container where certain work can happen. You know, the U.N. gets a lot of grief a lot of times. But wow, they they have an incredible security system going on in Afghanistan where I just felt like you know, from these bulletproof cars that we were in, you know, you can hardly open the door because, you know, so it's, yeah. it's so heavy to you come into the UN compound and you have to go through this maze zigzag because, you know, they're trying to prevent car bombs. And then I walk into, I, I was staying in a container, which is, uh, and I walked into my container. The first thing I see is a big sign on the wall that says, in case of mortar attack, do not panic. Wow. <laughs> it's like, great. <laughs> I can see how right. your um, your ability to, you know, take up your role as a facilitator and coach in that setting is moderated by that, that anxiety and that, that, oh, that my context. Yeah. You know, and then coming into the hotel, we did this in a hotel, the Serena Hotel in Kabul. And I have never, ever been through that level of security. I mean, it was just wow. extraordinary. Just, you know, uh, security check after security check, body check, body check, security check, you know, everything wow. over and over and over again before you actually get into the hotel. And, you know, a postscript is I later learned I was, I was on the UN compound in Kabul and I was at the Serena Hotel delivering this program. And then I was on Jalalabad Road and I, which is the main road in Kabul. And I later find out that those are the three most dangerous places wow. in Kabul. <laughs> those are the places where all the attacks have occurred. It's probably it's good like, that you found that out after. Yeah, it's yeah. like, oh, great. Yeah, yeah. That's really great. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, it was, you know, again, I just going back to my mom and Columbia, I was just mm. grateful that I'd had that in my background because I knew I was going to grow tremendously from doing this. I also knew that I could bring a lot of sisterhood to these women and as well as intelligence and as well as kind of a global view of what they were trying to accomplish. Mm. And so you found I, yourself getting back centered and back in yeah. yourself, your, your body and, yeah, yeah, and yeah, centered, yeah. Yeah, present. So, you know, one of the, I guess to talk about the design, this was a multifaceted design. It was not specifically a team coaching design, although, mm -hmm. you know, went in with very specific intentions about building this cohort of women so that they could work together more effectively as a group mm -hmm. for the advancement of women in Afghanistan. I mean, so it, in, it involved, you know, as I said, it, invo it involved a lot, maybe too many things. And it was, it was, it was kind of like, you just do what you can, but it was four different consultants with four different, you know, four different, different skill level material and all of that. And I was the person that was somehow having to pull it all together and make it make sense. Um, so you need but to be the team coach for the team of I was <laughs> facilitators. Yeah. I was, I was, I was having to pull together that team of interveners. Mm -hmm. So the the public speaking, you know, part was really powerful. I mean, there's nothing. Just give a little like, bit of context. So was this like a five day program, ten day program? Was it a mix of training and so or coaching or what? What what, what were yeah. you actually doing? Yeah, yeah. 
So uh, week one, well, actually, the first part was in Tajikistan, and there was three days for cohort A and three days for cohort B. And um, again, I you know, just want to talk the reality of doing things in these places. We had to translate everything into Dari. Hmm. And, you know, uh, that uh, Dari Cuts is... everything yeah, in half in terms of the time you have. Oh, my uh, gosh. You know, it's just enormous. I mean, all your PowerPoints, everything, you know, it's... it's uh, and the UN women, people who are supporting, they were all men who were supporting us. They were uh, totally lovely. But it was a lot, you know, it's a big, a big effort to just have that translation happen. And mm. so the first, the first one was three days and three days. The other uh, in Tajikistan, uh, it was a repeat and just in those in Tajikistan, you're doing a mix of what were you doing there? You had that was a, more of a training. It was first mm-hmm. public speaking. It was, it was um, actually no, it was, it was a diplomatic protocol, which was really important for a lot of these people because they're having to deal with a lot of international visitors, mm-hmm. and you know they're very high level ministers. So it was that, it was negotiation and conflict resolution. We did a a bunch of that. And then the public speaking component. And then there was just me building connections with everybody. And I did that really by like, for instance, going to the local mall and going shopping with them. You know, (laughs) it was really, uh, really fun just hanging Mm -hmm. out with this whole group of women all, you know, that were just from a look, looked like a totally different world for me, but we had, uh, we bonded in, in so many ways, in so many very deep, deep ways. And so that was, and, and then the other logistical thing that happens in these programs is of course, you know, the, so everything is so difficult for people. They couldn't get their, the second cohort couldn't get their visas, uh, to get out of Afghanistan, to come to Tajikistan because there's some new person in Tajikistan, Mm. blah, 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 blah. So I actually missed the second cohort altogether because I had to come back to New York and deliver another program. Hmm. And I didn't get to even see them until I got to Kabul a month later. Wow. So then a month later, uh, okay, we so just to- a recap. So the, the work in Tajikistan was kind of a training come together as a group, start to build some of the connections, really lay some groundwork for some deeper work. It sounds like. Yeah. And like, uh, you know, I was doing everything I was doing was trying to build this group Mm-hmm. Everything I was saying, you know, uh, the com- the commentary around collective leadership, the exercises that I was doing with them. It was really interesting, Krista. Uh, you know, the count to, you taught me the count to 21 exercise. Yeah. First, I've never had a group not be able to do that. Mm-hmm. This group, and I don't know if it was language or what, we could not do it. We, <laughs> Just it for the listeners not. out there, this is a great um, exercise you can do with a, a team or a group. We've done it with really large groups as well, where you have everybody stand in a circle and count to 21, but in a random order. So people around the circle kind of have to shout out a number sequentially, one to 21. But if two people say the number at the same time, you, you have to go back to the beginning. And it's a really powerful exercise in collective intelligence. And um, you have to make some interventions as a coach, oftentimes for the group to be able to do it. But uh, this is the first group. I know you did in in, in West Africa with our colleague yeah. Jason, like 150 people. 150 yeah. people did this, yeah, pulled yeah. this off. But you couldn't get it in Afghanistan. I, I could not uh-huh. get it to happen. And I, you know, at mm. some point it was like, how many times are we going right, to try right, this? Right, right, right. Did they get better, though, with the coaching intervention? Because you kind of slow people down, get them breathing, Mm -hmm. actually have them turn uh, facing out and close their eyes and, you know, slow down a bit and get in their bodies and sense the space. But I had never done it, to be fair, I had never done it where I was actually having to deal with translation. Yeah, that's I'm curious about that. That was bold, though, for you to give that a crack. Yeah. Did you you see an increase in their performance? On the yeah. And I think, yeah. I think they were trying to, I think they were trying to, you know, work the system. <laughs> they were trying, <laughs> problem, they're trying, trying to problem solve it. Yeah. They were trying to problem solve it. Yeah. And I think it had an impact. Nonetheless, mm. I think it had an impact on them simply feeling themselves as a as cohort, a feeling yeah. themselves as a team, not, you know, getting out of their heads, getting into their breath, getting their feet on the ground and breathing into their space together. Mm. And we did a lot more, um, the second, uh, in, in, when we were in Kabul, we did a lot more of that kind of activity because, um, I had a coach with me who was just amazing, amazing. And she, and we did a lot of nonverbal or just interactive kind of body experience experiences that I think helped people, uh, connect, but this was the first. And, and I, so I think they got the idea Mm -hmm. and I think they, they really, there'd been, you know, here, let me just give a little context about this, which is that, 
Uh, president Ghani is the president of Afghanistan, and I guess he won by a slight margin, and he basically is in a power-sharing arrangement with uh, a, the a, another leader who's uh, also um, in the government. And so a lot of these women are sort of broken down by allegiances to these two parts of the government. Mm. And um, and I think there's a, a certain amount of, of tension. And, and then, and I don't want to get into it too much here, but, it's, you know, just difficulty coming together. And, and then I will say that in general, uh, I think women worldwide have difficulty coming together. I think people mm. think sometimes, oh, women are so collaborative. Not so much. Women are undermining each other all the time and uh, in subtle and not so subtle ways. And these women were no exception. They were doing a lot of things that were not really supportive of coming together as sisters with a very common purpose. And they do have a common purpose, which is to really empower women in Afghanistan. So those were some dynamics that were emerging. Yeah. Those were were some that were right away from the, from the get go. Mm. So some of this conversation, you know, count to 21, such a simple exercise, but simply bringing in the idea of actually, can you feel yourself as a group? Mm-hmm. Can you breathe together as mm-hmm. a group? Can you sense each other as a group? Uh, we're pretty powerful. Yeah, um, I think that's one of the things I've noticed as a team coach is really most people have never had the experience of actually, you know, maybe in sports teams or other places of really, you know, when you get into flow or feeling connected, I think we don't have too many of those experiences in our emotional memory. So I think count to 21 is for a lot of teams and groups. One of the first times I think they've experienced collective intelligence and it's super powerful, but I think it's something we could push the envelope on and do more to keep having that experience. Cause if it starts to become, you know, more frequent, then it's something that maybe we get in our DNA and we can start to go back to and start to create more of that. And I'm just, you know, the more work I do in the field and with myself, I just am very, I think embodied experiences are so powerful. Mm-hmm. And I think I get in, in the course of doing that simple exercise, I was giving these women who are all highly educated, you know, highly brainiac women permission. Mm-hmm. They're also, they're highly brainiac women and they're also deeply feeling women. They're mm-hmm. very deeply emotional, yeah. Yeah. De- de- very passionate people. Mm-hmm. And I was giving them permission to get out of their heads more and really, you know, and get into a more embodied experience. And what was possible for them when, when you did that or what I think the language, I think the language start, if I think about it, you know, in that first session in Tajikistan, I think the language started to change and many women started to talk to each other about the importance of really coming together and supporting each other. And I can't say that I was tracking it all because, of course, it was in Dari uh, with direct translation. But I was tracking a lot of it. And I was uh, I was trying to track the different divisions in the group and where the different you know power struggles were going on. Mm. But I definitely was picking up the increased amount of focus on how do they come together and how do they. And, and then, of course, I was feeding into that, not just how do you come together to better serve the the men in the in power in Afghanistan. But, you know, how can you and everything I was saying, how can you be the fierce mothers of Afghanistan and be a model, mm. not just for Afghanistan, but for the world, you know, and wow. uh, and I think mm. that was happening in, in Tajikistan. And, thinking about that. Yeah. Talk yeah. about a compelling purpose. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And I, I think I was wanting them to see themselves a little differently as not one down. But actually as as very, wow. very powerful. Yeah, wow. because also the other thing about these women, I will say, uh, uh, corruption is probably the biggest problem in Afghanistan. It's a huge, huge problem that's affecting everything. And these women are, as far as I could tell, the embodiment of integrity. Hmm. I mean, I like, for instance, we come into Tajikistan and I was there for just part of the second cohort's arrival. I was there to greet them and to have dinner with them. And the second co- and the second cohort, they had all asked the hotel if they could actually share rooms so that they could not use up so much of their DSA, their daily subsistence allowance, so that they could give it to charity to support wow. other women. Wow. And, the, you know, it's like, geez, you know, most people take that extra DSA and they pocket it, it and they yeah. make, you know, yeah. not these women. They absolutely wanted to give it to other women. Wow. And, you know, Very the selfless. women. Mm. Yeah. Really selfless and really, really mission mission-driven people. Mm. So Susan, so, in the second yeah. work you did, wave of work you did in um, Kabul, you were out there for a couple of weeks or... Um, and I it, was, mm-hmm. it was the same thing. It was three days and three days. It was okay. a six day total with each group. 
And that group was more like what you might think. Well, it had it had training components and then it had more like real coaching components. Mm. Training components were I did the NBI with them, the um, which you were well, thinking preferences assessment. Yep. Yeah, which they loved that, and it was mm. so it's such a great assessment. And we because, had to translate it into Dari, right? <laughs> oh my god! And it was, and they just loved it because you know it it is very intuitive and mm. and it's got some good imagery, and so some of the yeah. language barriers didn't really matter. And but of course, like like people often do with these assessments, they started taking it way too seriously. Yeah, like take it too, you know, too too literally. Like, yeah, or drink now the I know, on it. Yeah, now I know who I am. It's right, like, right. It's, like, <laughs> it's a little sliver of who you are. <laughs> one sliver, just one suggestion. We also did a whole thing on transformational leadership and using that for systems change. That was honestly a little heavy. It was good, but I, I didn't do that component. But mm-hmm. it was a little, it was a little too intellectual. These mm-hmm. these women wanted more experiential types mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. interventions. I work alongside uh, this woman, Shipe Malushi, who's a coach, and she's been working in um, throughout Central Asia for a long time. She was just awesome. She was so powerful. First of all, she comes in, she looks like this shaman, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and she was very comfortable. For instance, we would start our days doing things like having some woman come forward and do a Quranic verse. Mm-hmm. And I, I wouldn't have really known how to do that and, mm-hmm. and you know, to, to build rapport with a group like that, but she had no problem. Mm. The more the, so the more the, the pieces that I did, uh, aside from pull the whole thing together was I, and, and from doing the NBI, I ran the NBI portion was I did the, the, la- I, my last day with both groups, I did, a a really moving piece on, on, uh, uh, finding our voices and then leading together. Mm-hmm. And um, the finding our voices part was, you know, using a kind of coaching framework to talk about our river of life experiences, you know, what have been the challenges mm-hmm. and what have been the supports mm-hmm. that have made us into the leaders that we are today. And I decided to uh, do a kind of a felt like a bold move on my part to really share some of my personal experiences. Mm. Now, I grew up, as I said, in a pretty, pretty patriarchal family setting where it was not, ex- it was explicitly and not explicitly communicated that I was a second-class citizen. Mm. And I had a brother who was five years older than me that I am still processing some of the some of the difficulties of living with somebody who was so empowered and so really was very abusive to me in many many ways and was authorized to be abusive to me in many many ways hmm. i decided to in a confidential setting we sh- we kicked all the men out which hmm. uh, you know all the wow. all the translate all the translators were men and wow. the un and the un afghan in the afghan representative un afghanistan un women people were men we kicked them all out they were supportive of that, but they also, they kept wanting to come back in and listen to what was <laughs> I said, no, 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 you have to get out of here. You have to get out of here. And, uh, and I really shared my personal story mm. and in a pretty deep way. And it was, you know, it was a, it was a choice, a use of self of instrument. Mm. Like, you know, what can I share here that's going to actually open the door? Mm. And it totally opened the door wow. in a big way with people. They started because people are really afraid to share with each other because of, for obvious reasons, yeah. there's a lot of security issues and a lot of, a lot of reasons that distrust is mm. low. Anyway, they really talk about creating psychological safety, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think there's something there powerful. I think just for us as team coaches around having to model the change that we're hoping that the group yeah. will take up. But you know, by you putting yourself out there, I mean, psycho. You know, we hear a lot of buzz about psychological safety, but how do you build psychological safety? Well, you have to take some risk. In order to take some risk, we have to be vulnerable, right? And so, at yeah, some point, and, somebody and, needs to yeah. start that. And so, kudos to you for for taking a bold move there. Cause you know, you could imagine in that environment, people could have just responded and not reacted, not responded to that or been like, well, thank you for sharing that Susan and that, stopping there and not jumping in themselves. So. Well, and some of this, you know, is, is moving into a material that just isn't talked about, yeah. you know, it's and taboo. I, I mm-hmm. is taboo and I, and I knew that and I, and yet it's a bit, it was mm. a part of my story. And, and uh, the other thing about it that was really powerful for them was that I was a privileged, highly educated American woman. Mm. And they were like, wow, 
that happened to you. Mm. You know, that happens in the United States. You know, that's what happens to us all the time. Wow. We can't believe that you have had similar experiences. Mm. And I think that was a, a really, really mm. powerful moment for yeah. everybody. No, it just touched my heart as you were saying that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, because, of course, then I shared with them about, you know, how much my story isn't particularly unique. It's mm. really shared by a lot of women mm. around the world in the United States, for sure. So anyway, that was the morning. You know, we had a really beautiful, sacred kind of environment. I'd, I had candles. I mm. had a circle of chairs. I had really beautiful music. And so that's what we did the first morning is sort of that river of life journey of what's made us strong. And then we moved from that into, uh, actually, we did some more public speaking because we, you know, it was, again, the public speaking part is so much, you know, you take your personal journey, your personal voice, you know, finding voice is such a big mm. deal for women in general. I mean, it's a big deal for a lot of people, but for women in general, in terms of women's leadership, it's huge. It's like, can we, you know, what are the ways that we stifle our voices yeah. and how do we actually stand into our stories? Um, mm. And so I had them do more public speaking and they did, they, they, you know, it's so, they do so much of it and figuring out, you know, it's, it's dicey. Like, how do you get, stand up and do a public, a five minute speech about how do you talk to your fathers and brothers and uncles about mm. women's empowerment? Mm. You know, how do you talk about the importance of, you know, women's empowerment? How do you talk about a vision for Afghanistan where women are equal partners to men? Uh, in an environment where, you know, everybody is, uh, a lot of women are wearing burqas, a lot of, everyone's covered and women, you know, like one woman said to me, you know, women are nothing in Afghanistan. Uh, they're treated like as, and I felt, I felt that there's a lot of, you know, just really just very, they're not just second class citizens. They, m many women are like third, fourth, fifth, you know, s slaves, many women. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, and then there are many women that are very empowered by their parents and, you know. So we did that, and then we moved into a, a World Cafe-style strategic planning, if you will, mm. process where I had them thinking, oh, I asked some really team coachy kind of questions. You know, one question was, you know, what can you, what can we, the fierce mothers of Afghanistan, uniquely do that the world of tomorrow needs, you mm. know? Oh, great question. How, yeah. How do we keep ourselves smaller than we really are? Uh, what divides us and how can we overcome that division? You know, things like that. And then moved them into, a, you know, from that kind of divergence into an integration of, okay, what are, uh, what are the, some key next steps over the next three months that we as a team, we mm -hmm. as a cohort, whatever we want to call ourselves, can do working together to improve our community and our strength mm -hmm. together and our support for each other. Mm -hmm. And they were so excited by this. They were like, seriously excited by it. Well, and it sounds like they, you laid the groundwork for all that over the work in Tajikistan and the days leading up to this and the sharing that you did that right. morning. So Right. And then the thing that's so cool about technology is that, you know, we do this whole thing, this divergence to integration, and all the integration is up on the flip charts, and we're doing the sticky dots so they can see which ones are most important to them. Mm. And then, of course, everybody has cell phones, and they're taking photographs, and immediately they're putting it on Viber. They have a Viber community. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, awesome. and ever since then, I'm part of that Viber group. Of course, I can't mm. understand any of it because it's in Dari, right. but they're regularly communicating with each other, awesome. you know, so and using technology to support yeah. ongoing yeah. te teaming yeah. because they don't work as an intact team. Right. So they do not work as yeah. an intact team. But Afghanistan, Kabul's mm. a small place and it's a small community of women in the mm. in the government. They so they are contact. Yeah, they have a lot. Well, and hopefully now much more supportive contact yeah. as a result of this program. And how are you supporting so, them? Are, are you supporting them in an ongoing way? Well, there's no, you know, there's no budget for that, mm -hmm. uh, as you might imagine. They, what I'm hoping, and I, you know, put, I, I, in my follow-up actions, I mean, I really am hoping they will go for longer-term coaching interventions yeah. with this cohort, and I think they might. Both team coaching for this group, mm -hmm. for the high-level group and the next level, probably more for the senior ministers, I think, probably for that, mm -hmm. that level. Because it's so amazing, you know, when yeah. you can work at that level, how much it can permeate wow. through the whole Oh, it's huge. System. That's great stuff, Susan. Um, and then I'm, you know, I think there's more, I think they'll support more individual coaching um, mm. of each of, of uh, which I probably wouldn't do that, but Shipe would probably mm. do that as, as well as, as well. So there's some really talented people, uh, 
coaches in Afghanistan that could right. be great to do that kind of work. What I love about your story yeah. is kind of working across levels from the individual to the team to the larger context. I mean, you know, and I guess that's the, what I think of team coaching a lot is really is a meta competency that brings t training, that brings facilitation, that brings coaching. And you don't have to do it in a cookie cutter way. It's just a really nice customized um, intervention here. And there's some really just lovely themes here just about gender and about um, just sort of the connection to the larger world, right? And that, you know, a, a powerful group of women coming together as a team in Afghanistan might not only have a huge transformative impact on that society, but have ripple effects across the world, right? Um, and that story, you know, coming out on this podcast or your podcast, I mean, it inspires people out there. And I think that's one of the big things I'm taking away from today is, you know, just thinking bigger and bolder, you know, and as team coaches, um, wonderful to have people like you out helping the women of the Afghan government um, step up to their role uh, and have some support around that. What a, what a beautiful thing to be involved in. What more meaningful work could you do? And I know you've yeah. had some great work and you've been flying around helicopters in South Sudan recently and uh, in Iraq and you've, you've done, you've been to a lot of really interesting places, but this is a very, very touching story. In many I ways, think this yeah. is also probably the most touching because mm -hmm. I am so passionate about That's empowering topic. women yeah. and uh, using coaching to empower women, using group methodologies to empower yeah. women. Um, you've got a niche there. Yeah. That focus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you were mentioning and, you focus know, earlier. What's happening with the podcast, too, I'm noticing I just interviewed uh, a woman who's um, – on the on the on President Santos's leadership team in Colombia, the the mm. peace build the the peace process, the leadership team to support the peace process in Colombia, and what I am noticing is, you know, being is the ways that we can connect women peace builders all over the world. Like these women in Afghanistan were really interested in being connected to her in Colombia, and then this woman in Northern Ireland, and so I'm beginning to think, hmm, this podcast that I'm doing actually can mm. be a forum for connecting women's voices in that way because. Bingo. Yeah. Um, so again, not a specific team, but, but yeah, yeah. Uh, there are boundaries around these groups that can be drawn yeah. to make them stronger. Definitely. Mm. Definitely. Well, I like to say, Susan, we're, you know, burning daylight again on the podcast and we should probably start to bring this down. You know, obviously people can go to the peacebuildingpodcast.com, check out more if they're interested in this topic. It sounds like you're going to have an episode where you talk more about your Afghan story. So folks may want to tune into that when that episode comes out. But, um, you know, I guess, you know, just sort of in the closing here, Susan, people want to learn more about you, you know, find you on LinkedIn, find you on the peacebuildingpodcast.com. Uh, and what, where else can they go? And also, you know, what um, sort of parting advice, words of wisdom do you have out there for team coaches and would-be team coaches and any sort of final, you know, inspiration here? And then we can start to say goodbye. Okay. Well, the only other place to find me is cglobal.com, which is my consulting practice. And... Um, you know, I think my, boy, my words of wisdom, huh, I think my journey has been, oh, you know, I'm a feminist, and long ago in the feminist movement, it was like the personal is political, something line like, like that. I would translate that to, I find that for every bit of work I do on myself and clean up my own stuff and evolve the better I am at being of service to others, the better I am. I notice it. I'll just say, you know, my, <laughs> I am definitely a team coach to my children, I guess, if you could call it that. But I do notice how interesting it is that I work, you know, ancient issues. Of course, some of these issues that we, that we get, that we have when we come onto this planet, some of them are generations old. I mean, I, I don't know. That's and uh, so the more I work those issues, the more cl clearly I show up on the planet, the more fiercely I stand for collaboration and systems collaboration, I think the more useful and the more value you know, I am to others and the, the more value I bring. So I guess I, my, my feeling is just that don't minimize the importance of really um, doing your work. And uh, being the, you know, the, the being strongest, the channel, being the, clear being the channel, channel the mm. clear channel, because that's really invaluable. There's a, a lot of pain out there and a lot of need. I feel like coaching is an incredible peace building tool mm. and uh, incredibly needed in terms of bringing people to think, think in terms of collect, collect well, not, I won't say coaching, I'll say team coaching and but team coaching is an incredible tool to get people to really start thinking about collective leadership. Yep. What does that mean? Yeah, real how collaboration. We, yeah, yeah, really, how do change. we work together? And it's it's not an easy journey, and it's a really rewarding one, and it's been the journey that I've been on for a long time, 
And what's cool about picking a journey that you're constantly going to learn at is that I'm going to I'm I'm continuing to learn, and that's super mm. exciting. So, anyway, well, beautiful stuff, Susan. You know what I'm taking away from today is if you can bring team coaching into the women in the Afghan government, I think it sort of says that we could probably get in. We could do that anywhere. So, for yeah. the team coaches out there, be bold. You know, it is challenging, but you know, Susan getting out and going through all that security and all that. You know, I think it just shows what's possible. When, Let me uh, just say can, one other yeah. oh yeah, one other thing about team coaching is that like I, I you know another client I've um, been working with in a um, peacekeeping environment you know I just noticed in that environment uh, that the team the high level team is really at odds with each other and there they are in a context where they're trying to build peace in a society <laughs> that's really in conflict they're not modeling it and they're not modeling it. And you know, and I'm hoping that I get in there to really be able to do some team coaching with them. But it just, it uh, you know, I think at these high levels, these teams at high levels, they really need this stuff. Yeah. They really need to understand how to come together and how to work uh, as a collective. Yeah. So yeah, well, good stuff, Susan. So I'm going to put all this into the show notes of the uh, of the episodes for this podcast, which people can find out at teamcoachingzone.com dot com forward slash Susan Coleman. We'll be putting it out there. Really excited to get this out um, to the world. I think I'm going to make this the last episode of uh, interview for 2016. So we'll close that episode number 70 with this one. And uh, Susan, really, again, um, great to have you on the show. Really excited to see where the Peacebuilding Podcast and your journey uh, takes you in 2017 and beyond. And have a wonderful rest of 2016, the few days that are left. And uh, yeah, good stuff. So. Yeah, thanks, Christopher. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about this. You really bet. enjoyed it. Yeah, All right. take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Team Coaching Zone podcast. Check out www.teamcoachingzone.com for show notes and for more awesome information and resources. See you next time and stay in the zone.